Listen to those words again, because I don't want to live like I don't care. I don't want to say another empty prayer. Oh, I refuse to sit around and wait for someone else to do what God has called me to do myself. Oh, I could choose not to move, but I refuse. That's what we're going to talk about today. You up for that? That's pretty good stuff. Well, before we dive into chapter 3 and our study in a little book with the big message, the book of Jonah, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and your electronic gear with Bible apps on them. Don't be trying to fool us. Ushers are watching. Hold them high over your head and say this prayer we've been saying throughout this series on the book of Jonah. Let's put it up. Here we go. Ready? Dear God, we study your word to know you, the truth, and to find direction for our daily lives. Give us the guts to follow your will the first time so we can avoid living in the gut of a really big fish. Amen. I love that prayer. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little review of where we have been. Jonah, the prophet of God from the northern kingdom of Israel, has been called by God and invited to leave a posh job he has as a prophet with people he really likes, giving out good messages to them, to go to a people he doesn't like to give them a bad message. God called him to go to the city of Nineveh where pagan and evil people live, to leave the comfort of his own hometown, to go to give them a message from God, a stern message, to repent, turn from your evil ways, or be destroyed. Now we know in our study that Jonah tells God on the phone, I'll need to get back with you. And he hangs up the phone and then he splits. He has no intention of getting back to God. As a matter of fact, he moves in completely the opposite direction, 180 degrees from the place that God was calling him to, trying to get out of God's cell coverage area, which we discovered is impossible. God causes a great storm to stir, to brew on the Mediterranean Sea, the ship that Jonah was on, headed for this land called Tarshish. And finally, as a solution to the storm, the sailors throw Jonah overboard, and God calls a great fish to swallow Jonah, who apparently listens to God's call the first time, unlike Jonah. Jonah spends three days and three nights in the belly of of the great fish that we simply refer to as Whale University. Tuition free, Jonah has three days to ponder his relationship with God. And it's in this fish that Jonah surrenders. He surrenders his life and he surrenders his will to go where God's calling him to go. And God calls the fish to belch Jonah up onto dry land. What land? The sandy beaches of Tarshish, where he was heading? No, back to where he got started. The sandy beaches with his now bleached body faced east toward Nineveh. Now that everybody's caught up, I want you to take a look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now I can't help but think of that commercial where the guy says, Can you hear me now? 
That's what I think of when I read this passage. God is repeating the call that he gave to Jonah in chapter 1 and verse 1. If you haven't seen it, look at it again. It is almost word for word, verbatim, what he told Jonah just a little while ago. Maybe God says there's a little static in the divine line. And God wants to make sure that Jonah gets the message loud and clear. He's not letting Jonah off the hook, if you will. Get it? Off the hook? It's got two things. Obviously off the hook, you know, with the fish. But then there's also, remember we used to put phones on a hook? Kids, you don't know about this, but there was a phone that we used to call on that we could put back on the hook. So talk to people about that. Look at the verse again. It says, and I love this phrase, a second time. All that just ministers to my soul. You see, many people live with the notion or the idea that God is a cosmic killjoy standing above just waiting with a grin on his face to catch you doing something bad and then zapping you for it. But the pattern of God from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament tells us a different story that God is a God of patience, that God is a God slow to anger, that God is a God who is long-suffering, as it's told to us in the Old Testament. And there are numerous examples where God just didn't wait or give a second chance, but he gave a third chance and a fourth chance. And aren't you glad that he does that? All the church has to say amen to that. Now look at verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Ah. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. I want you to notice the extent of Jonah's commitment. We are told that it would take Jonah about three days to walk through the city of Nineveh and proclaiming the message that God gave him. And I'd just like to simply make an interesting observation. How many days did he spend in the belly of the fish? How many days did it take him to walk across Nineveh? Now, don't you think that while God is a God of second chances, there's an incentive to follow his will the first time? That if Jonah had just given the three days up front, it wouldn't have been a six-day experience, but rather just a three-day experience. And that is a good lesson for us, that while God is a God of second chances, when we don't follow his will the first time, we most inevitably will introduce detours unnecessarily into our lives. And at the end of the day, for followers of Christ, we'll still commit to the three days he called us to, but another three days that maybe weren't so pleasing. Look at verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Take a look at that again. I want you to notice the message that God gave Jonah to give to the Ninevites is only eight words long. That's it. Eight words. Listen. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just eight words is all he had to speak. If the technology existed back then, Jonah could have tweeted this message. It's under 140 characters. I'm looking at some of your faces right now and I'm just feeling a vibe here. And you're saying to yourself, I wonder why Max and Randy don't boil their messages down to just eight words. <laughs> I understand. I see you. I'll tell you what. I'll promise 
to reduce my messages to eight words if you promise to respond like the Ninevites do to the eight words that Jonah spoke. Look at verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. But it doesn't stop there. Continue to read with me in verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Wow. This is pretty amazing. I've been in ministry now for 23 consecutive years. And it would be like a parent of a serious wayward child. That parent going to that child and confronting them with eight short words and the child saying after that one confrontation of eight short words, you know what, I completely get what you're saying and I am so sorry for the way I've been living, I'm going to change right now and they do. I've been in ministry for 23 years and I've seen people turn but very seldom do I see them turn on the first confrontation and certainly not with just eight simple words. But they do. It doesn't happen very often, but this is one instance where it does. This is no doubt a stark contrast to Israel's response to God's word. You see, God had sent messengers, prophets to Israel all of these many years, warning them, confronting them, teaching them, and the prophets were basically speaking to ears that were not hearing. Why would Jonah think that the Ninevites, who don't know God and are pagan, would simply respond to these eight words? His own people, who grew up with all of the miracles that God did right before them, aren't even responding. This is a slap in their face when the Ninevites, after one encounter with the word of God, eight simple words, they fall to their faces, repent, and worship God. This is in stark contrast to God's own people. Now, one more point of application to make. Listen carefully. We should never underestimate the impact of our words and our life can have on other people when we follow God's will. We should never underestimate the impact of our words and our lives on other people when we follow God's will. It is certainly true of this mini sermon that produced a huge response in the Ninevites on that day. But did you know, I certainly didn't know this until a couple of weeks ago, 
But did you know that this message, preached over 2,700 years ago, is still having impact on the people of Nineveh today? It's true. Did you know that there are believers today all over the world, including in modern-day Nineveh, who trace their ancestry in Christ back to the sermon of Jonah in Nineveh? It's true. Let me tell you their story. Jonah would have given this message somewhere around 750 B.C. He preached this sermon and the entire city turns to God. Now we're going to learn next week that they did not sustain this commitment and the vast majority of them turned back to their worship of other gods. But there is a remnant of people who stay true to their worship of the God of the Bible. Fast forward to the time of Jesus, around A.D. 33. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and he's now ascended to the Father. And there's one of his disciples, you may remember him, Thomas. You remember Doubting Thomas? Well, Doubting Thomas, obviously when his doubts were secure and he believed, uh, he splits and he goes northeast to Nineveh immediately and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus to the Ninevites and that remnant of God-fearers of the Old Testament become Christians. Fast forward to A.D. 256. Historians tell us that the entire nation of Assyria have all become Christians. All of them through the message of the gospel. Fast forward to A.D. 650, they were sending missionaries to places like India and China, the first ones to send missionaries there. Fast forward to today, 2700 years plus after the sermon of Jonah, and these churches that have emerged called the Church of the East are found in places like Australia, New Zealand, Lebanon, Syria, Europe, India, Russia, Iraq, California, Canada, and listen to this, their headquarters for their denomination is in Chicago, Illinois. Amazing. Ninevites. Here's a picture of their church in Moscow. Now listen to this. Every year, this group of Christ followers, February the 14th through the 16th, February 14th through the 16th, observe a fast in recognition of Jonah's sermon. And just like the king of Assyria issued a fast after he heard the sermon, so they observe a three-day fast in recognition of Jonah's impact and how those eight words have changed their lives over 2,700 years later. Now I want to show you a map of Nineveh. This is in biblical times. You'll see Jerusalem, the area where Jonah was hanging out, and he goes northeast to Nineveh. But some of you aren't maybe as familiar with your geography. I want to draw a line and show you a map of modern-day Nineveh in Assyria. It is now called Iraq. And the city closest to Nineveh is called Mosul. According to my research, after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, militant Muslims have risen up to commit genocide against the Assyrian believers. They are losing their lives. They are being persecuted. We have some pictures of that 
or uh, that of, of some of the destruction that you'll see, the bombings of their churches, pictures of believers who have been killed for their faith in Christ. This is the condition of the Ninevite believers, and uh, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters. Now, there are three principles that I want you to walk away with today. You might want to write them down. Principle number one, God is a God of second chances but it is easier to follow God the first time. God is a God of second chances, amen to that, but it is easier to follow God the first time. Maybe sometime in the past, God tapped you on the shoulder, or if you will, metaphorically dialed up your number and put a call in your life to do something, to go somewhere, to say something to somebody, and maybe you didn't listen to it, and some time has now passed, and you thought to yourself, you know what, I'm not in the belly of a fish, I must be off the hook for that. Um, I would say probably not. He is the God of second and third chances my encouragement to you is to reconsider before you take a trip to Whale University. I also thought sometimes God's call on our life is big, like the call of Jonah to leave the comfort of his daily life in Israel to go to a foreign place to people he didn't like. Sometimes that is the call of God in our life. But I was thinking about that this week that for most of us, most of the time, God is simply asking us to put on his lenses and see life as he would see it and act as he would act as we simply go through our daily life of being in our homes, in our neighborhoods, of being on the freeway, in our cars, and being in school, and being at work, or wherever God takes us in the daily course of life, that his call on us is to simply see people and see things the way he sees, and then simply to act the way he would act. And that came to me in a very powerful way this week. I was in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area for a couple of reasons this week. And on Friday, I had a meeting in Carrollton, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas. I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for 22 years, but I'd only been to Carrollton for anything, maybe twice in my life, and that may be overstated by 50%. And I just didn't spend a lot of time there, so... So I was uh, a little early for the meeting, and so I found a Starbucks uh, that was close to the office I was going that was connected to a Target. And so I went in to get myself some coffee, and I opened up all my stuff, but I couldn't handle sort of the Target uh, callings in while I was drinking my cup of Starbucks coffee. Aisle 9 needs toilet paper. There's been a spill. Aisle 9, toilet paper. There's been a spill. You know, and I thought, okay, that doesn't work. So I grabbed my stuff, and I went outside. And I had some peaceful time outside, and, uh, and, uh, and as I was about ready to get uh, off for the meeting, I saw a young lady walk out, and she had uh, the uh, carrier of uh, the car seat, you know, that's now portable, and she had that in her hand, uh, a venti cup of Starbucks coffee, which most young moms need in the morning, and, uh, and her keys dangling. And as I looked at her, I thought, this is what God is saying. He's saying that you need to look through my lens, Randy, your call right now is to help her. So I go up to this gal, and I didn't want to scare her, uh, you know, right behind her, and I said, ma'am, can I help you? And she turned around and said, Randy? <laughs> I said, uh, yes. She says, I go to Oak Hills. 
I said, you're kidding me. She said, yeah, we're here visiting our family up for the golf tournament and all of this. And I thought to myself, you never know who's watching. I'm so glad she's not coming back to San Antonio and saying, because she said she recognized me before I recognized her and, and saw her. And I can imagine her back in San Antonio says, he let me stumble with my keys and my coffee and sat there as a pagan Ninevite and didn't do squat for me. I'm I'm so glad on that instance that I follow God's call. Sometimes it's just that simple. Here's a second principle I want you to consider. Write this down. Eight words from God are more impactful than 2,000 words from man. Our words are very powerful that we speak to people in our lives to both lift them up and to tear them down. I still remember things that people told me back when I was just a little kid. Most of the negative things I never forget. Think about it. I still carry them with me today. They're powerful, but nothing is as powerful as when we speak the truth of God's word to other people. And that's the call of all of us in the lives of other people. Hebrews chapter four and verse 10 says, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It is able to pierce so deep into the life of another person that it actually can judge the thoughts and intents of their hearts. The church of the east uh, is in deep trouble in the Assyrian area and the church leadership is speaking to the Christian young people there. And I found um, a little video that they did and each of these little um, slides is eight words or less of just words of encouragement, words of challenge, words of truth to the Ninevite Christian who is seeking to live out their faith in Iraq. Take a look at this. Eight words.
just eight words. What are eight words that God is calling you to say to your child, to your grandchild, to your neighbor, to the person you work with, you go to school with? Words that flow from the truth of God. There's a guy this week who spoke words that sent the world into terror. But most of you didn't embrace it because you knew they weren't words from God. They weren't. When we read the scriptures, we are told by the lips of Jesus himself that no one, no one, not even Jesus himself, knows the time that God is going to send him to return. If God the Father is not going to let God the Son in on the information, I'm not sure a civil engineer named Harry's going to get it. <laughs> Color me stupid, but I'm just not thinking. It is true that Jesus is going to return. It is true that the world will be judged. And for followers of Christ, that should not cause you to fear, but to rejoice. I have a better message that I think we should send out, and I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind, uh, those of you who brought your cell phones and iPads, uh, I'd like us to do a tweet together, okay? So those of you, seriously, get out. Um, I, uh, get your now, if you don't uh, have a, a Twitter account, uh, you can maybe do a text message or an email to someone who needs to get a message, okay? And I'm going to give us an eight-word message that is in the spirit of what we just dealt with this week, uh, and get it out and get ready to do a tweet, an email, or a text. And some of you says, you know what, I was trying to be a good Christian by not bringing my phone into the service today, and now they say they want it, right? So maybe write this message down if you don't do all that technology stuff, and maybe speak this to somebody this afternoon, or maybe do the old-fashioned and take the phone off the hook and give them a call. So here, here's the message I want you to tweet, okay? Live as though Jesus were coming back today. Eight words. Live as though Jesus were coming back today. Put that in your tweet, your email, your text, and push send. I did this last night, and as I was uh, getting ready to put my account and Twitter tweet out, uh, I got a text message. True story. I got a text message come up on my phone. I never really have it in the service, and it's from Max. And Max is in New York right now. And this is what the text message sent. Uh, it was just a few minutes before 6 o'clock. <clears throat> My phone has been programmed to automatically send this message if the rapture has occurred and I have been taken. <laughs> this is true. So, if you are receiving this, it stinks to be you. Totally true. Come up after the service and I'll show it to you. From Max Licato, huh? You thought he was a nice guy, right? True story. Okay, I'm going to get my little Twitter here, uh, tweet account ready, and I'm going to send it and go to all three of my followers. It'd be kind of cool to see uh, what kind of impact we have in sending out the truth of God's Word. You see, God is not going to tell Harry or anybody when he's coming back. He wants us to live, as it says in Thessalonians, with the notion that it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And so he calls us to live as though every moment, every 
today he's coming back. Didn't come back yesterday, but live today as though he's coming back today. And if he doesn't come back today, live tomorrow as if he's coming back tomorrow. And that will rearrange your priorities like nothing else. Final principle. Never underestimate the lasting impact of your words and life on others. Never underestimate it. When I read this passage this week, I thought about 37 years ago when a Christian neighbor decides to go to an unchristian, unchurched home just two doors down. And he says these eight words to then a 12-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. Just eight words. Would you like to come to our church? A 12-year-old girl named Teresa and a 14-year-old boy named Randy simply said yes. And 37 years later, it has changed the entire outcome of my life. My sister is a minister at a wonderful church in Minnesota. Her husband and her have adopted three beautiful Guatemalan orphans and they are raising them in the grace and compassion of our Lord. I married a good Christian gal and we have four grown children now. As of this year will be empty nest and all of them are walking with God. And I now have a grandbaby. And she came out of the womb with the love of Christ surrounding her. The 14 years that I lost, she has gained. Because a man was courageous to come to Nineveh two doors down and say eight simple words. And because of those eight simple words, I now stand before you today. 37 years later. It's amazing. God wants you to speak His words through your life. Don't underestimate the impact it will have. And all of the church said,